how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Obadiah and Joel, part one. We come now to the minor prophets, so-called because they're little ones, compared with the big ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And some of these little prophets are just one page in your Bible, but they're terribly important. And we're going to look at two of them in the next two talks, Obadiah and Joel. Now, these written prophets all seem to relate to the exile. They either speak before the exile and warn that it's coming, or they speak during the exile and seek to comfort the people, or they speak afterwards and help them to get resettled in their own land. But it just seems that all the prophets in our Old Testament relate to this great tragedy that the people of God lost the land that God had given them and were taken back into slavery virtually, deported from their own home. Now, what is a prophet, basically? A prophet is someone who speaks for God, but that means that he is also heard from God. And so the two qualifications of a prophet are, one, that he has the sensitivity to hear from God, and two, that he has the courage to pass on what he's heard. And the prophets receive God's Word in a number of different ways, but one of the most common is through pictures. They actually see things happen before they happen. And so a prophet is often called a seer in the Old Testament. He sees things. <clears throat> now, sometimes these pictures come during the day when he's awake and they're then called visions. But sometimes they come during his sleep, when he's uh, at night when he's asleep, and then they're called dreams. And the Holy Spirit brings these visions during the day when they're awake and the dreams during the night when they're asleep. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they actually see things happening before they happen. And when they describe what they've seen, they usually describe them in the past tense as if they have happened. And this is a peculiar feature of prophecy that we have to get used to. We would uh, put it in the future tense and say, I have seen what is going to happen. But the prophet either puts it in the present tense, I see it happening, or I've seen it happening. And what he is describing is the dream or the vision that he saw. So he describes it in the past tense as if it has already occurred. And some rather naive Bible students have thought that these prophecies were actually written after the event so that they're not really predictions at all, they're just reports afterwards. No, it, it, they've got confused because the prophets are using what we call the prophetic perfect tense as if it's something that's already complete. But what they are describing is what they saw happening and they saw it vividly. They saw details. We shall see in one minor prophet that he actually saw the colour of the uniforms of the soldiers who would destroy Babylon. And he said, I saw red coat soldiers coming. And he couldn't possibly have known that in fact the Persians who destroyed Babylon wore red coats, their soldiers. 
And he saw it and he describes it as if it's already happened. So we've got to get used to this prophetic perfect tense in which they actually are talking about future events as if they've happened in the past because they did see them happening in their own personal past. Now Enoch was the first prophet of God in the Old Testament, the very first to bring a prophecy from God and it was a warning of judgment and that's characteristic of prophets. They are often called doom and gloom merchants because God usually sends a prophet when things are going wrong. Well, that's understandable. I mean, uh, usually maybe you don't see your boss until you've done something wrong and when you see the boss coming you may think, what's gone wrong? Or when the headmaster says in uh, the assembly hall, some boy, and I know whenever our headmaster began a sentence with some boy, we all cringed and wondered which of us he'd found out. Well, the prophets came with this, some people have been doing this. They were sent when things were going wrong. And of course, I've told you that David's empire was the peak of their history, but after that, I'm afraid things went downhill quite badly. They began to go downhill the day that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And from then on, their history is a sad, deteriorating situation. And God sent prophet after prophet warning them that if it went on going down, that he would have to take them out of the land altogether and they would lose the promised land. Uh, a disaster that they found inconceivable and I'm afraid they didn't believe that it could ever happen. They said, how could God let his temple be destroyed? As long as we live somewhere near the temple, we're safe. But in fact, the temple was destroyed and God let it happen. But God never punishes people without warning them first. That's part of his goodness. He doesn't suddenly appear and say, that's enough. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet. If you go on like this, this is what will happen. And that's why so many of the prophets are really related to this disaster of the exile. The prophets who came before, who warned them it was coming, then during and after. We are going to take two of these prophets who prophesied before the exile. One is called Obadiah, I've taken two, and the other is called Joel or Yoel. Actually, these were the two first <coughs> prophets to come to warn about what was coming. Obadiah was the very first and Yoel was the second. Unfortunately, in our Bibles, the minor prophets are not in the right order, so it's rather difficult to place them. But Obadiah was the first written prophet, the first prophet whose message became a book in the Old Testament scriptures and Yoel was the second. Now, I've put up an outline of uh, Obadiah or Obadiah, as we should say, the shortest book in the Old Testament, it's only one page, 21 verses, that's all. Maybe he only spoke once in a lifetime and yet his words have come down to us hundreds of years later. Obadiah, if you want a date for him, 845 BC and that opened a period of 300 years during which prophet after prophet after prophet 
came and spoke and warned the people of God, don't go on like this. Yoel the second was 835 BC, just 10 years later. We know he was later because he quotes Obadiah and says, God has already said this to you and he quotes Obadiah. So we get them in the right order and from other hints within the prophecies we know their dates. So Joel used Obadiah's prophecy and built on it and in particular picked up one phrase which Obadiah introduced, a totally new concept and the concept was the day of the Lord is coming. And that concept, the day of the Lord, goes right through all the later prophets and right through into the New Testament. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a very important phrase which we'll have to look at in detail. It's the day when God comes to put wrongs right. Now, the prophets had two messages. One was for God's people Israel but they also had messages for the nations around Israel. They didn't just speak from God to God's people, they spoke to other peoples, almost every one of them. In fact, Obadiah didn't speak to Israel at all, but to one of Israel's neighbours called Edom, living southeast of the Dead Sea. And so his prophecy is entirely concerned with another nation called Edom, which is interesting. The first of these prophets didn't speak to Israel at all, but to Edom, and we'll have to ask why. Now we know very little about him. We know his name, which means the worshipper of Yahweh, or the servant of Yahweh, but to worship it is to serve, and we still say we're holding a worship service on Sunday morning. And so serving God and worshipping are the same thing in the Bible and he is called the servant or worshipper of Yahweh, Abad-Yah, but we call him Obadiah. And that's all we know. And most of his word is a prediction about the future. It came to him, he says, as a vision, so he was wide awake, but he saw this picture. He saw it happening and then he describes what he saw very, very clearly. So it is a visual rather than a verbal message and he is one of the seers of Israel who could see things happening before they did. Now this state of Edom was what we call in Transjordan, over the deep crack valley of the Jordan and the Aravah Valley, over on the other side. And I don't know if I've got uh, a map. Yes, I have. Let's uh, look at the map. This is the promised land of Israel, but actually God promised this part to Israel as well, but uh, they never actually occupied it fully. Under King David, Edom became a sort of satellite, much the way that Poland and Latvia became satellites of Russia. And so David conquered Edom, it came within the empire, but the people of Edom still lived there. And as soon as the empire of David began to shrink, as soon as things began to go wrong, Edom immediately sought its own freedom and rebelled against the kingdom of God, represented in the king of Israel. So that's where they lived, southeast of the Dead Sea. And they had two cities, one was called Bozra and the other was called Sela, S-E-L-A. We now know that as Petra, 
and I'm sure you've heard of Petra and the amazing buildings. I'll show you photographs of them in a moment. But it was called Sila, uh, and it was right on one of the most important roads of the Middle East. There's the crossroads of the world where the road from Africa to Asia crosses the road from Europe to Arabia. And this road down the far side of the Jordan Valley was called the King's Highway. It was up that road that Moses had led the children of Israel. But the two cities of Bosra and Selah were on that road. And Petraism, as we call it now, is a most unusual place. I remember years ago going to visit us once. I left Amman up here and we actually drove down through the desert down the King's Highway. Alongside was the railway that Lawrence of Arabia was always blowing up and this is where Lawrence of Arabia operated and we went right down uh, past Basra. We came to near the place and then we had to leave the car and we had to get on some old mangy horses covered in dandruff, I remember, and we climbed on these horses and we went through this narrow crack in the mountain you could touch both sides of it at points. It's called the Sikh. And we rode for about a mile through this crack and the rock was up anything up to 100, 150 feet either side of us. It's just a crack and very dangerous to go through when there's a flash flood after a rainstorm. We saw a car washed away through that and uh, people were drowned going through there. So you've got to go when it's dry. And then ahead you suddenly see a temple about the size of St. Paul's Cathedral, carved out of the rock. And it's the most amazing sight. And you come out of this crack, the Sikh, and there you face this, looks like a cathedral, and it's carved out of the red sandstone. You then turn right and you come out into a large open circle where there are a thousand temples and they're carved out of the rock all around this huge empty circle in the middle of the mountains and towering above them is one mountain. It's about maybe 2,000 feet high, just towering with sheer cliffs and this is Mount Seir, the old city of Selah where the people of Edom lived and the prophecy of Obadiah is all about that one mountain. I think I'd better show you some pictures straight away so, you've, so you can be a seer too <laughs> and you can see the situation. That's the Sikh, the, the narrow crack through the rock and there's somebody on horseback being led through. Well, more people. And uh, you come through. This is just one of the temples. I've drawn a man in to show you the size of it. That's a man down there. And this is carved out of the solid rock incredible achievement. The architecture is superb. We could climb up to the top of this peak and from there you could see both the Dead Sea one way and you could see the Red Sea the other. It is most incredible. Uh, and all around this circle are these carved temples. When you go inside, they're as big inside as they are outside and there's nothing propping up the ceiling and the walls are the most amazing shades of red, purple and green sandstone. It really is a fantastic place to visit and it's totally deserted. And then in the middle you see Mount Seir like this. It's impregnable and the Edomites lived here. 
and up here you find altars of human sacrifice where they offered humans alive to their gods. And down here you can see all the houses carved out of the rock and other little temples. They literally were cave dwellers, but my, such caves! Now those temples do not come from the days of Edom, I have to add that. They were built by the Nabataeans centuries later, but I'll come back to that. But the Edomites lived in this fortress and they lived right up on top and of course it was impregnable and they were proud of this. No one can bring us down, they said. Obadiah quotes that. Their pride, we are invincible. I'm reminded of Captain Smith of the Titanic and uh, both Jim and I share an interest in the Titanic. We've touched things from the Titanic, haven't we, Jim? That were brought up, but uh, Captain Smith said God himself couldn't sink it. Oh, what a dangerous thing to say, you know? And Edom said God himself couldn't bring us down. And Obadiah's message is, you are going to be brought down. Oh, proud Mount Seir, you'll be brought down. Well, that's the, the background to it. It's an amazing place for an amazing word. Now what is significant here is that the God of Israel is the God of other nations. Now that really is a radical thing to say in those days when every nation had its own God and they believed the God of Israel was just the God of Israel and other nations had nothing to do with him. That's what they thought, but you see the God of Israel was the only God there is and he will not only judge Israel, he will judge every other nation too. That's the message. And the God of the Christians is the only God there is and he will judge people of every other religion too. See, do you believe that? It's not easy to believe that in what's called a pluralist society when everybody has their own God, but if there's only one God and the creator of the universe is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, then the God of Israel is the God with whom every nation will have to deal and to whom every nation will have to give account. That's the revolutionary message of the prophets. They didn't just speak to Israel, they spoke to everybody. Our God is going to judge you too. And that's the uh, radical message of Obadiah, everything's under his control. And of course that's the message of the New Testament too. When Paul spoke at Athens on Mars Hill, he said, God allots every nation its time and space. It's God who draws the map. It was God who brought the British Empire to an end. When I was a boy, the school atlas was red. You could travel right around the world and never leave British soil. It was the empire on which the sun never sat, set. So what happened to this great empire? The answer is, we washed our hands of God's people Israel and God said, if you can't look after my people, you can't look after anybody. And within five years, the empire went. I believe that was one of the clearest examples of the hand of God because one of the other principles that comes out in these prophets is this, that God judges other nations by their attitude to his people, that that's the thing that is most important to them, to him. How did you treat my people? 
which in the Old Testament days means how did you treat Israel, but in these days also means how did you treat the church. And God will judge the nations of the world for how they treated his people. And that's written on history. It's written large. And the first nation to be so judged was this nation of Edom for what they did to Israel. Now that's a very interesting principle. What we do to God's people, we do to God. Jesus picked up the same principle. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And when he said my brethren, he means Christians there. He's not talking about anybody. The word brethren is only used in Matthew's Gospel for Jesus' disciples. And Jesus says, touch my disciple, you touch me. Laugh at them, you're mocking me. Saul of Tarsus learned that the hard way on the road to Damascus. A voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul didn't say, but I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the Christians. Because he realised in a flash that what you do to Christians, you're doing to Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's a profound principle. What you do to God's people, you're doing to God. They're the apple of his eye. And that's the most sensitive part of God to touch the apple of his eye, as the iris of your eye is the most sensitive part of your body. You touch my people, says God, you're touching me. And that's a principle of judgment of all the nations. Now that God's people are in every nation of the world, every nation is having to decide their attitude to God's people. On the day of judgment, that will be a major factor. In fact, at the very beginning, when God called Abraham, he said, Abraham, whoever blesses you, I'll bless. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. Now, that principle comes out in prophet after prophet when they speak to other nations. And that's why most of their prophecies are to nations that had contact with Israel, that lived around Israel, and that therefore had taken up an attitude towards Israel an attitude that would cost them their future destiny. Well, you're beginning to realise there's an awful lot in Obadiah. Let's go back to the outline and work through it. Very simply, it divides into two halves. The first half, verses 1 to 14, is that one nation is going to be judged, namely the nation of Edom. The second half from that vision of Eden being judged, he sees all the nations being judged. It's, it's an expanding vision. Well, now let's uh, look at the various parts. First of all, one nation will be judged. Eden, by the way, means red. And of course, the city is made up of red sandstone, as you saw, but that's not why it's called red. The location is on the eastern side of the Rift Valley of Aravah and the two cities, I've shown you them. Selah or Mount Seir was that great huge rock in the middle of what we now call Petra, most easily defended. I remember going to Hitler's eagle's nest in Berchtesgaden and he built this uh, house on the top of the mountain above Berchtesgaden 
the walls are four feet granite. It's an impregnable place. They called it the Eagle's Eyrie. And from there you can see as far as Munich, it's an amazing place. And yet 20 years later, he was committing suicide. It's amazing how man likes to build high and get up there and say, I'm it. I'm. Ever since Babel, man has tried to do this. There's a race on at the moment to build the tallest skyscraper in the world. Do you know that? I've got pictures of all the projected skyscrapers and all the present ones. The tallest is the Sears building in Chicago at the moment, but soon it'll be dwarfed. Uh, they're planning on the Pacific Rim, three skyscrapers a kilometer high in an earthquake zone. Can you credit it? <laughs> Such is man's pride. We have got the tallest building in the world. And I've seen the plans for building a kilometer high. And after that will come a building a mile high. We built it. We're the biggest. And there was this pride in Edom. But there's far more to it than that. I'll come back to that later. Obadiah says, the nations are going to destroy you. And unlike burglars, they won't just take the things they're interested in, they're going to take everything from you. And unlike grape pickers who always leave some grapes behind, there'll be nothing left behind of you. You'll be humbled, you'll be brought down, you'll lose your territory, you'll lose your status, because God hates pride in men. It's the, it's the one sin that really gets God when man is proud, when he thinks he's everything, when he thinks he's invulnerable. It's almost inviting God to bring that man low when a man is so proud. Well, why? The answer is because Edom despised Israel. You see, the, there are two sides to pride. One is that you have a very high view of yourself, but inevitably the other side is that you have a low view of everybody else. You can't have a high view of yourself without a low view of others, because you're just the same really. And if you put yourself up, you have to put others down. And in particular, Edom, lifting itself up in pride on the top of Mount Seir, looked down, literally, looked down on Israel, but they despised Israel. And this, this hatred went back a long way like most conflicts do. Conflict in Northern Ireland goes back 300 years. The conflict in the Middle East between Arab and Jew goes back to Isaac and Ishmael. And it seems as if the more closely people are related, the more they can hate each other. If you haven't uh, been close, you can't really hate. Now that's why when a marriage breaks up, there can be more hatred there and, and more contempt than if they'd never known each other. And it is because Edom is actually Esau. That's why Edom means red, because Esau had ginger hair. And the Edomites were direct descendants from Esau, and you remember Jacob and Esau. And if you read the Jacob and Esau saga, then you understand the later pride and contempt in Edom, Esau's descendants. And so Esau's descendants had settled on the east side of the Rift Valley, and Jacob's descendants settled on the west side, and they glared at each other. 
But it's interesting that God forbade Israel ever to have a wrong attitude to Edom. And you'll find in Deuteronomy God says you must always treat the Edomites right because you must remember that Esau was Jacob's brother and God commanded brotherly love toward Edom on the part of Israel. And that's why Obadiah in this prophecy against Edom says, you shouldn't have treated your brother like you did. Because what happened was this, as soon as the empire of David began to crumble, the Edomites rose up and anybody who attacked Jerusalem or Israel, anybody, whether it was Philistines or Arabs or whoever, later the Babylonians, the Edomites always joined in. They didn't just stand by, they joined in. And when the Babylonians came, the Babylonians had a horrid habit, they were very barbaric people, they would take babies by the foot and smash their brains out on the rocks. And the Edomites joined in. And the Edomites urged them on, egged them on, go on, do it to them, do it to them. And all their hatred and jealousy and resentment of centuries came out. When the Philistines came against Jerusalem, the Edomites joined them. When the Arabs attacked Jerusalem, the Edomites joined them. When the Babylonians came, the Edomites joined them. They took every opportunity. Of course, they weren't strong enough themselves to do much, but when they saw somebody else, they were quick into the fight and took the side of everybody but Israel. And they were brothers, Jacob and Esau. And God condemns them for their lack of brotherly love. You shouldn't have had that attitude towards your brother Israel, taking advantage of their weakness, taking advantage of their enemies' attacks. You shouldn't have done it, and God's going to judge you for it. Well, question occurs, did they hear what Obadiah said? And if they heard it, did they heed it? That's the question. Well, the first part is all about Edom, but halfway through Obadiah changes from the third person to the second, from talking about Edom as him to talking about Edom as you. And it looks as if Obadiah had the courage to go to Petra and tell them to their face, you shouldn't have done this. My, if he did. It's no wonder the prophets were killed, you know. And they were, one after the other. But he obviously went to Edom and he told them, I must hurry. What happened to the Edomites after it? Well, their history is a very complicated history, but in the 6th century BC, the Arabs attacked them and uh, they had to flee. And they left their city and they moved over the Rift Valley into the Negev Desert. And the Negev was renamed and it was then called Edomia after the Edomites had come. So they now lost their cities, they were now living as Bedouin in the desert, as it were, in the Negev, they were Edomites, but they built up their wealth there. And then came a day when an Edomite from the Negev, a descendant of Esau, went to Rome and talked to Julius Caesar and said, would you sell me the throne of Israel in Jerusalem? And the Romans sold him the throne and his name was Herod. 
Herod the Edomian, the Edomite. And now he was king over Israel. The Edomite, Herod the Great, was king over Israel. And he said, now I'm going to build greater buildings than the Nabataeans are building in my old city, Petra, because by now these great temples were being carved out of the rock. And so that's why he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. That's why he built his palaces everywhere. That's why he built the palace on Masada. The Edomite was now king of the Jews. And when the wise men saying, where is he, came and said, where is he born king of the Jews? Can you imagine why he was so angry? I'm not having a Jew on this throne. Edom has conquered. I'm Herod the Great. And he killed every boy in Bethlehem. And his, his son was the Herod who killed John the Baptist and to whom Jesus had nothing to say at his trial. And his grandson was the Herod who was eaten by worms in the book of Acts. And his great-grandson was a man called Agrippa who died in the year A.D. 100 without children. And the Edomites have disappeared. There isn't a single Edomite in the world today. And it all happened because Obadiah saw it happen and said it would happen. It's an amazing story, isn't it? How the Jacob and Esau thing nearly killed Jesus. How Jesus himself stood on trial before an Edomite. It tells you this, that God takes his time about judging people because from Ovidiah to their final disappearance is 910 years. God doesn't judge quickly, but he does judge. There was a German poet in 1653, picked this up. My German's no good, but here it is. Gottes Mullen, Malen, Langsam, Malen, Abertreflich Klein, Abans Langmutter, Sich Somat, Bringt mit Schafet alles ein, which I'm sure you all understood. Let me give you Longfellow's English translation. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small, though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. God takes his time, he's slow to anger, but when God says he'll do it, he'll do it. It may be a thousand years later, but he will do it. Where is Edom today? Gone. Where is Israel today? Back in her land. If you don't believe in the God of Israel, I don't know how you explain this, this and so many other things. Well now, from this judgment of Edom, Obadiah saw that one day all nations would be judged, that God of Israel will hold every nation responsible and especially for their attitude to his people. And then adds the most amazing thing. And one day Israel will possess Edom because that part is included specifically in the land that God promised to his people. And one day they must have it. And Obadiah saw that. Well, now it's nearly... It's over two and a half thousand years later and it hasn't happened yet. But the promise included all that part of the Fertile Crescent between Gaza and the Euphrates. 
and it includes this part. And he saw it coming. He saw that there would be no survivors from the house of Esau at all, but that their land would be possessed by its true owners. And in the last part, 17 to 21, he sees Israel expanding to the north into Ephraim and Samaria, to the south into the Negev, to the east into the Edom hills, and as far as the Mediterranean coast in the west. And he saw it and he describes it as if it's already happened because he saw it so clearly. What has all this got to do with us? There's a Jacob and an Esau in every one of us. And if you read the epistle to the Hebrews, it says to Christians, don't be like Esau, sold his birthright for a pot of soup. And he, he cried, his tears flowed afterwards. He was full of regret and full of remorse, but he was never able to repent. And the New Testament says, don't be an Esau, be a Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God until God lamed him, but he got the blessing. And it's from Jacob that God's people Israel came and the Edomites have disappeared from history. Esau lived for the present, for the immediate satisfaction of his physical desires and he lost his future for that, which is exactly the attitude of the Herod, son of Herod the Great, before whom Jesus stood, who was a man who was so sensual, so eager to satisfy his own lusts that he gave away half his kingdom to a dancing girl, always ready to. And she said, I don't want half your kingdom, I'd like the head of John the Baptist. And he gave it to her, a dancing girl. That's the Esau syndrome. The Esau's of this world live for this world only. They don't care about the future. They are only concerned about the satisfaction of their desires in the present. Well, there's an Esau in every one of us, but don't let him out. Be a Jacob, the man who was broken by God, became a prince, and his name, Israel, is now on the map again after 2,000 years. When God speaks, he keeps his word. When he says he'll do something, he may not do it by next Tuesday. And that makes us impatient. Lord, when are you going to do it? You may have to wait a thousand years, but if God says he'll do it, he will do it. That's why we can trust his word. Little Obadiah, a minor prophet, but everything he said will come true. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.